All right, tonight we are going to deal with corruption. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the state of Illinois tonight. <laughs> uh, last week I introduced the categories of, of corruption that were going to come up. Uh, this is all about the church from the time that Christ was gone. This is the church from the when the apostles are off the scene and now the churches are trying to survive and make, make it um, be a continuing church. Uh, the, the apostles obviously could help keep things in check because uh, they, they saw Jesus personally, so they could, they could help people understand a lot of things. However, they were concerned that after they left, the church wouldn't be able to hold its same uh, uh, pattern of truth. Uh, Paul was concerned about it. Peter was concerned about it. James said, you know, we're, we're coming, uh, James written relatively early. He said, you, you guys better earnestly contend for the faith because there's a lot of false teachers out there right now. So it was a, a struggling church. It was trying to make it. Um, so was it going to be able to do it? They, Paul already told them, look, there's going to be wolves from, that are going to try to attack you guys. There's going to be some bad stuff going on even among you. Some of you are going to create problems. That's in Acts chapter 20 as he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He said there's going to be trouble like that all along. And they were told to use discernment. Test every spirit. Don't listen to everything that comes up. And we've seen already as Al is teaching to us about the councils of the, of the church that there was doctrinal stuff that was coming up all the time, and they'd get their bishops together, and they'd hack it out. They'd uh, look at the scriptures and try to figure out exactly what was going on. Sometimes the discussions they had would be just two letters inside a Greek word, that those two letters, if you switched them around just a little bit, would be a completely different word, uh, much, much like what happens in some of our English words today. So what I wanted to talk tonight was about personal corruption, when it's, when it's us that's having the corruption problem and when it's the church that's having a corruption problem. So um, let's, let's uh, have a word of prayer and we'll go right into this. Father, thank you so much for letting us have the opportunity to look into the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is a church. Thank you that there is the gospel for that church to be a participant in. Thank you for the word of God, for the Holy Spirit for teaching us, for giving us the Word of God in our own language. Thank you, Father, for the kindness you showed to us. Now give us an understanding tonight as we work our way through this outline tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't get a copy of the notes, they're right back there on that podium. Make sure you have a copy of notes because I, in part tonight, so that I can stick on, uh, on task here, I'll be reading some of this, all right? First of all, there are personal battles with inherent sin and other enemies using that tool. I don't think it takes a genius to look back and say, hey, you know, I struggle with internal things. I struggle with old memories. I struggle with old habits. I struggle with all kinds of things. And thank God by the Holy Spirit, I'm an overcomer. And thank God by the word of the Lord, there's no condemnation coming to me. Or I, th I think you'd just be totally depressed all the time because you're, you're, not always winning victories. Sometimes you wind up being very defeated. And that would drive you nuts if you didn't know that he'd already saved that spirit inside you and you're working out your sanctification every day. 
So uh, letter A under Roman numeral three, every believer knows that he has a personal battle with his own lusts and temptations. This is an ongoing struggle for every believer for all his life. The battle for personal sanctification is hard fought because it is internal. God's plan for winning that battle was humility, repentance, faith, and putting off the old and putting on the new. It's about believing what God has said about you. Are you forgiven? Do you have a new life? Have you been born again? Those are all things that a person has to come to terms with and say, yes, I know those things are true in spite of what my experience shows me about the way I behave sometimes. Here is what is true. All right. Letter B, Paul was chief in reminding us that we are also are not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. These create strongholds, arguments against the truth, and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. They appear as messengers of light, but are the powers of darkness instead. So in addition to having my own battles inside, where I'm having to deal with my memories and the things that I've done or the lust that I have, in addition to that, outside of me, there are principalities and powers who are very interested in my failure who are very interested in making sure the gospel of Jesus Christ does not go anyplace, that the word of God is not uh, preached or taught, to make sure that the uh, Holy Spirit doesn't get to do anything with us. If he keeps us defeated, we won't act in faith. Fear and faith cannot occupy the same space at the same time. So either we're going to be fearful or we're going to be faithful. And faith always pushes out fear. Sadly, fear pushes out faith. You have to really take control of yourself, take control of your thoughts and say, wait a minute, my father is with me. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to give in to fear, okay? Letter number one under letter B. Their teachings masquerade as truth and can lead one astray from the truth found in the scriptures and in Christ. The path then taken by the believer is nonproductive and fruitless. It, it is leaves and not fruit. It needs to be pruned. There's a lot of lost time in that. Now, let's, let's just do a little gardening experience here with the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? He, he said that I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you won't bear fruit. And he said, my father is the vine dresser. He looks things over and he knows what's not a good thing to keep on this vine. I, the father's after fruit not after attractiveness. You follow what I'm saying? Man, you might have a great, a great plant that is just loaded up with beautiful leaves, but maybe the grapes on it, if there are grapes on it, are about the end of your little finger. Why? Because all the energy went to limbs, and all, all the energy then went to leaves on those limbs. When Shar and I were living in Branson before we came up here, we had goats, we had rabbits, we had chickens, we had, and we knew enough to know in gardening, you can't put chicken manure directly on a garden. That's just too hot. It's too much nitrogen in to burn your plants up. But goat manure, however, was wonderful for it, and so was rabbit. And you could put that directly on there and be great for it. Well, man, I use goat and rabbit manure, and I try to mix a little chicken manure with it too, but that goat and rabbit, man, I put it in there. I never had green bean plants like that. 
They were deep, dark green. And big old leaves on them. Matter of fact, the leaves were big enough that if I watered underneath it, it wouldn't evaporate quickly because the sun couldn't get to it and that moisture would just come right back down to it. And I didn't have to water as much because the beauty of those leaves. I had tomato plants that were gorgeous. I'd never seen tomato plants with that green uh, 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 a leaf on it before. And then they, they flowered. I was looking so forward to it. And then the flowers died off. And all I got was really pretty plants. I didn't get one bean. Didn't get one tomato. So, man, I'm, I'm looking back up again. Okay, compost, compost, manure, manure. Yeah, there it is, manure. It says, it describes, these are the plants that you, you uh, these are the, the manures you want to use if you want beautiful grass or you want beautiful plants because this works for greenery. Do not use if you're looking for fruit. So, God's not looking for beautiful plants. He's looking for fruitful plants. You follow what I'm saying? And because that's what he's looking for, he comes by and prunes things off your life that are not fruitful. He cuts those off because they are a waste of energy toward bearing fruit. Now, sometimes you may be wanting God to leave this one alone. I think I look pretty with this one. Well, he knows enough to know it's got to come off. And there are times when God does prune us and take away from us some of those things that we really, really seem to enjoy, but when you look at them, they're really not fruitful at all. He planted us in order that we would be fruitful. Fair enough? Okay. Uh, if, if you get involved with some of the teachings, now, for instance, I, I really enjoy uh, getting to talk about the divine counsel and studying all about that. But if I can tell you for sure, that is a, a road trip that is not always productive. You can trace that little road trip down there to fin- figure out about all the Elohim and all the sons of God and what they did, and you'll wind up studying Irish mythology day in, day out, and only to find out, well, that may have been a pretty leaf, but there wasn't one bit of fruit came out of that. You may study all you want to about Roman or Greek mythology to see what was it these uh, Elohim did to those nations. But you wind up after a while realizing, man, that just wasn't fruitful at all. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 with me just for a moment, would you? Turn your Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 3. What I'd like to show you here is what Paul had to say in verse 8 of Titus chapter 3. He said this. This is a trustworthy statement. Here's something you can bank on. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in what? What you're saying in verse 8. What are we supposed to be engaged in? doing what is good, doing good works. As he says, these things are good and profitable for men. That's fruit. You follow me? That's fruit. That's what he's wanting for us. But look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. That's leaves, guys. That's just leaves. So you can have all kinds of discussions with people, 
And sometimes those discussions, uh, you, you get into them, and sometimes they can be heated. They can get really up there. But if I can share with you, that's leaf stuff. You're not going anywhere with that. You may wind up winning an argument and losing a friend. Uh, you may wind up winning an argument and losing the war. It's just not worth it. You've you got to look over and say, what, what really is valuable? What really is important? And there are some things that just produce leaves, and there are some things that do actually produce fruit. All right? And the rulers of the darkness of this age would love to keep you at leaf stage, where that's all you're ever producing. If you can become a beautiful-looking plant so that you answer all the arguments and you answer all the things, you know all the stuff, but you don't have any goodness coming from you, then you, you have wasted your time, okay? And that's what they're good at doing. Number two under your letter B, these messengers produce high-sounding doctrines that fascinate the imagination and draw the hearer into a thought life that can seem so true. But it winds up being a useless path of fiction and a distracted journey away from holiness. That's what happens to us if you get engaged in too much of the high imagination type things, and that's what they're really good at, Okay. So the first one is I've got internal struggles. That's from my own lust and temptation. Secondly, I've got external struggles with the principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavy places. I've got those outside of me that are working on me. And then the, the letter C, but when worldliness comes. Now, worldliness. Worldliness is what the adversary has used to appeal to me when he knows that that's what's inside of me, that's what I want, that's what my temptations and lusts are. Here's the adversary. The adversary works for Hershey's Chocolate Company because he knows that I love Hershey's with almonds. So what he displays before me on a regular basis is only the rich love Hershey's with almonds. The most popular people in the world eat Hershey's with almonds. And he keeps displaying that, letting me know that if I'm wise, I'll eat Hershey's with almonds. But he also knows that I'm diabetic. And there's nothing like Hershey's and almonds to put me in a coma. <laughs> you, know, you understand what I'm saying? So he uses worldliness to appeal to you. He... He can tempt me with cigars all he wants, and I promise he'll never get me. I, I, don't, I don't like being around cigars. It's not that if you, if you happen to be a cigar smoker, just forget what I'm saying. But I don't like them, so there's no point in saying to me, look, only the best people in the world smoke cigars. It doesn't do anything for me, and it won't. And what, what is appealing to me may not be to you at all, but that worldness is any way that I can be in control of my own thoughts and own wishes because worldliness has to do with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Everybody see where we're coming from? So that's what he's going to hit us with. And worldliness is one of those areas that's really hard for us. So I've got internal conflicts. I've got external conflicts with the adversaries of the world here. And then I've got this thing of worldliness that appeals to the flesh that's in me, all right? So let's look a little further with it. But when, let us see, when worldliness and fleshly lust combine with principalities and all, it becomes the practice of the church. The battle is almost too intense to uh, fight. 
Some true believers, number one, attempted by truth and Holy Spirit to cast out the spirits and purify the church within its structure. Now, what do I mean by that? There are some people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that recognize when there is the wrong spirit working in the church. And, and they will uh, try to uh, talk to people about that wrong spirit. They can see, if they see a spirit that actually is dividing people, that's actually uh, making people upset with each other, listen, they recognize that spirit and they want to purify that spirit. It, it may be a pastor who's just saying irritable things and irritating things to people. And, and maybe all that guy wants to do is just come and say, Pastor, I'd like to appeal to you. Please stop speaking that way. That just hurts so many people when you say that, okay? So that, that's one way that that person is going to try to clean the worldliness out of that church. But uh, an internal struggle followed within the mind of the heart of believer. Often erring leadership structure upon seeing the threat, this threat to its power, and I'm just telling you what the history was, it tried to eject the purifiers out of the fellowship many times with violence. So sometimes in history, when the church found those people who were trying to point out the error of its way, they put those people under uh, judgment and oftentimes kicked them out of the church and sometimes violently. Sometimes they burned them at the stake. You know, John Wycliffe realized that people need to have the Word of God in their own language. People need to be able to read it themselves because he realized that the church had reached a point that there was clergy and there was laity. The laity did not know how to read. The clergy did. So the clergy would read something and tell them, this is what you're supposed to do. And it might not have been what was said at all. It might not be what he was reading at all. And sometimes the clergy, knowing the laity couldn't read anyway, just made up their own rules. Well, John Wycliffe said, you know, People have to be able to see this themselves. They have to be able to pick up the, the Word of God and read it themselves. The leadership, no, they can't do that because they're not educated. They're not smart enough to know this. If they read that Word, they'll get all confused. and They'll do think, well, truthfully, if they read it, it would threaten the power of the leadership. So they didn't want them reading that. Well, John kept saying, yes, 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 we're going to do that. Well, he did it. And as after he did it, they caught him burned him at the stake, took his ashes, spread him out, burned the ashes, did, did all kinds of stuff to him just because they hated him so, all right? So sometimes those that seek to make something pure get in trouble, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I can say there's a whole lot of churches doing much dis church discipline at all anymore, so... I don't know that I could, uh, could answer that there, there could be churches other places in the world, but I, I don't know of it. Right. Yep. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. There you go. So you had others in the church who recognized there was something corrupt going on. There's some worldly thing going on there. Um, they were witnessing the futility of the struggle, and they separated from the main corrupted body and formed new fellowships to a new location. They just realized there is no point in having this fight inside this church. No point trying to win it. It's too far gone. And they just moved down the street, start another church or start another fellowship 
that that has happened a lot. I'm, uh, listen, as I'm saying these things, I'm not giving approval or anything. I'm trying to tell you what the history was. This is what's happened, okay? Emotionally and psychologically, this can be a painful loss of friendships. Uh, you know, Jesus was talking a, a parable about a, a, a sower who went out to sow seed, and he sowed the seed, and then when they got up in the morning, or got up a little bit later, they looked out there, and there are weeds growing up right beside the wheat. Well, his disciple, the, the workman in the field said, shall we go pull up the weeds? He said, no, don't pull up the weeds now. If you pull it up now, you'll hurt some of the wheat. Listen, when people get into a church, the roots they have get tangled emotionally with everybody else. And as you get tangled emotionally with everybody else, yanking somebody out, often pulls the root of those who don't have that problem. Ever follow what I'm saying? It's better to try to correct and everything you possibly can because once you start yanking people out or telling people they have to go, emotionally and psychologically, it's painful because they're having to give up friendships. Uh, I think some of you probably know people who have been um, deployed or sent someplace else. Uh, as they've, they've gone someplace else, their roots are all tied in right here. I, I still have people that are writing me from as far back as the mid-80s. And we're still good friends. But they felt the pain when they left because part of, the, part of them stayed with the roots that were here. Does that make sense to you? So you, it's difficult when you have to pull up and leave uh, all your friends behind you, Okay. But some attempted to separate from error in a solitary manner. In other words, they tried to do it themselves. This, too, was often met with persecution by the main corrupted body. That's what the history of the church has been. In all cases of corruption of the main body, it is an adulterous relationship of Babylon, the spirit of whoredom and filthiness. She will always seek the death of the remnant believers. Okay, So any time that you can look through church history and you can see the church killing off believers themselves, kids, that is a, a real good sign of a relationship with Babylon they shouldn't have. That, that doesn't mean that they are uh, now lost people. It just simply means they should never have entered into that relationship with Babylon. They just never should have. Um, I, th I think I was, uh, sometimes reading church history has been very painful for me. It's, it's been a, a real uh, test of faith. I can remember uh, John Calvin. Of course, he's one of the heroes of Reformation. But John Calvin had a real problem with the group that they called Anabaptists. Now, that group has uh, called themselves Anabaptists now because that's what they were called. Do, do you know the history of any Anabaptists? That, that'd be the Amish people, the, the uh, Mennonites, the, those groups like that. Why they were called Anabaptists? If you remember, during church history, uh, the church baptized infants. And that baptizing infants, that was to purify them and put them in the covenant that their moms and dads were in. Well, as the Reformation took place and people were called on to let the Word of God tell the truth, let the Word of God tell you the truth, and don't let tradition of people tell you stuff, let the Word of God. Well, the group that came to be known as Anabaptists said, well, let's look at the Word of God completely then. And they looked at it, and what they found was every place somebody was baptized, it was because they were a believer. 
So they begin to say, wait a minute. When I was an infant, I didn't know whether I believed or I didn't believe. So they actually did this. Two guys looked at each other. They were in an assembly of people, and each of them baptized. They baptized each other. They baptized each other, and that what, what the uh, Reformation people called those was Anabaptists. Anna means to do again. So Anna, you're baptizing again. And they said, no, we are not Anabaptists. We didn't baptize again. We weren't baptized in the first place. Baptism is for believers. We weren't believers when you sprinkled water on us or poured water on us, whatever you did back then. So we, we say we're just, we're finally being baptized. Well, they call them Anabaptists. Some of the Reformation people so hated the Anabaptists that they actually tied them up, took them to the river, and threw them in the river laughing, saying, that here's your third baptism. And they drowned. Now, guys, that is a relationship with Babylon that should never be. Because always remember this, Babylon always kills God's people. That's what Babylon is always after. And so, anyway, that, those, are, those are some of the things that bothered me in church history as I, I had a chance to look it over, okay? Um, letter D. The enemy outside the believer, persecution and even martyrdom, helped hold in check believers wandering into ungodliness. As long as they were being pursued for practicing righteousness, there was not the time to practice ungodliness. In other words, that's why martyrdom and persecution are a good thing. When you have persecution and martyrdom, you're not having time to think over, what could I do that's ungodly today? You haven't got time to think about ungodliness You've got to be concerned about how can I live for the Lord? And it becomes sort of a, a badge of honor that, that anyone even consider persecuting you. You remember how Jesus taught us? Be rejoicing when men look at you. Well, matter of fact, don't, let's don't let pastor say it. Let's go back to Matthew just a minute, shall we? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. That's in the New Testament, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, let's see. Right here. All right, let's pick up on, say, uh, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in other words, when persecution was getting onto the church, this is the first 300 years. The first 300 years there was persecution, seemed like on a regular basis. And as long as that persecution was there, at least you knew you were doing something right or there wouldn't be any reason to persecute you. Uh, how did Paul put it? Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 just for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3, he said this, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, 
purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, in Lyst- and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Then he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You follow that? So he's saying persecution, martyrdom, is a badge of honor. That's how you can know you're doing the right thing. If they're after you because, as a Christian because you are a Christian, that's a badge of honor. And he said, hold to that. So as long as the church was doing that, uh, doing the uh, uh, righteous thing, and they're being persecuted for it, they could hold in check ungodliness. It was when they got free time. It was when they ran into, well, let's just look at letter D again. As long as they were being pursued for practicing righteousness, there was not time to practice ungodliness. That is the principle of putting off and putting on. There was a stark difference in the godly and the ungodly. For the first 300 years, the pressure of the outside enemy kept them following truth personally. It is usually leisure time, free time, that allows the believer to wander from godliness. When you've got too much liberty, too much freedom, listen, most of us don't know how to live with freedom very well at all. That's why we really like to have a boss. We like to have somebody to tell us what to do. Because you, you know better where you are if somebody's telling you what to do. you got a checklist at least that way. If it's, uh, uh, here are five things I want you to do today. Clean your room, wash the dishes, uh, do the laundry, and then fold the laundry. Okay. Well, I know if I did all those things that I had a good day. You follow what I'm saying? That checklist helped me to know I had a good day. And I know that at the end of the day, it may be the person who told me to do that says, thank you. That was just exactly what I needed to do. Here's the $5 I told you I'd give you for doing it, whatever it is. You follow what I'm saying? At least I know what it is. But when I've got leisure time and I don't even stop to think about what needs to be done today, do you know how easy it is just to blow off a day? And you come about noon and say, oh, Man, I forgot, i got to get the laundry done. And now you're looking and saying, there's not time to wash the laundry, dry the laundry, and fold it by the time that my wife gets home. You, you follow what I'm saying? There's not all that time. Freedom is hard to live with. Dictatorship is much easier to live with, at least you know when you're right and when you're wrong. You understand what I'm saying? And if anybody thinks that I'm taking, I prefer dictatorship, that is not true at all. I prefer freedom. What I prefer is, let's use a little wisdom with that freedom, okay? All right. Letter E. As with the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, believers were busy trying to discern false teachers from true ones and keeping up good and useful works that define the believer. As with those at Ephesus, with such practices, when, with such practices becoming routine, it will be easy to redefine our Christian faith as a militant group of false teacher hunters or allow their good deeds to become routinized, requiring no love to empower it. I watched as several ministries prided themselves in the fact that they found fault with everybody. Now, what I mean by that, it was a discernment ministry. And they read everybody's statement of faith. They read everybody's practice. They listened to everything YouTube on them. And, they, and here's where John MacArthur said this wrong. 
That's why John MacArthur is a false teacher. And here's where, um, name anybody else, said, said something wrong. And that's why he's a false teacher. And after a while you realize everybody's a false teacher but you. You're the only one who's not a false teacher. Now, I've seen ministries go just exactly that way. I've also known as an Awana worker myself that there are plenty of times that you could come to Awana tired, unprepared, and not want to be there. But you can still do the whole thing from memory. You know the schedule. You look up at the schedule and say, okay, it's time to go to devotions now. Oh, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Let's get to game time. Oh, boy. All I want to do is go home. You understand what I'm saying? It's easy enough to just let your work become routine. Yes, you finished tonight. Yes, you put in the time. Yes, you got to check off your list that you did do Awana tonight. But it wasn't done with any joy. It wasn't done with any fullness of the Spirit. You understand what I'm saying? And that can happen to us so easily. Okay, so let's go back to letter E again. Another great internal battle is keeping first things first. It becomes easy to ignore our only and true power, the Holy Spirit, and to do things in our own flesh. God promised Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a baby. God promised Abraham and Sarah that baby was going to be a great man. Great nations are going to come from it. God promised. God promised. And he kept on promising and kept on promising until Sarah was way past time to have kids. So here's Abraham kind of disappointed. But he knows God's got something going on or he wouldn't, he, God wouldn't make those kind of promises. He can't believe God would lie. Well, Sarah is saying, you know, I'm dried up now. What, I, what can I do? I can't have a child now. So why don't you, let's just help God along. Why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar, and let's see if you can have a baby with Hagar. And then we'll use that one as the promised one of God. Can I tell you, that's doing stuff in the flesh, guys. That's doing stuff in the flesh. And you, you know as well as I do that that didn't turn out well. It didn't turn out well for Hagar. It didn't turn out well for Sarah. It didn't turn out well for Abraham. And it didn't turn out real well for Ishmael. We want to be real careful that we don't just do things in the flesh, that we do them by the Spirit of God. Letter F. As churches used human power instead of supernatural divine power, the church could become institutionalized and its members simply worker bees to keep up their traditions. Central teachers could gain a foothold in their assemblies. Look, if a church will come to the place that they're not relying on the Holy Spirit at all, but they are relying on people who have the habit of knowing how to do things, habit of being Sunday school teachers, the habit of knowing when it's time to take the offering, the habit of knowing how to play music, the habit, the habit, the habit, the habit. Everybody follow what I'm saying? As long as I know how to do that, then I don't need to invite the Holy Spirit anymore. You follow what I'm saying? I don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. Well, as soon as I don't need the Holy Spirit anymore, I'm not a church anymore because the church's power is the Holy Spirit. It's not its flesh. It's not its habits. It's not its mechanical machine that it needs to be oiled every now and then. No, it's always been the Holy Spirit. 
And when I'm not using that Holy Spirit, I'm becoming an institution that looks like it's doing something. But when you look at it, finally, you know, there, there's, I've spent a number of hours over at the Children's Hospital in St. Louis. And at the Children's Hospital, they have this fascinating little uh, um, machine that's there. This thing has uh, a track, and it's got balls on that track. And they go slide down this track, and then they roll into, they hit a, a little bar that catches them here, and they roll down a path here, and it catches it over here, and it goes over here, and boy, pretty soon that thing is, it's all the way back up there again. It's got enough speed, it's all the way back up the top again, and it starts all over again. It is great for killing boring hours if you don't read or anything like that. That just, huh? <laughs> it is hypnotic. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? It goes on, it does its thing, but it's not accomplishing a thing. It, 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 it helped me get through some time where I can't be in the hospital room. I can't be any place, and I can't go home because I need to be right. So it was just a time killer. The church can't afford to be a time killer. You understand what I'm saying? It has to be a place where you are challenged to do good works. It has to be a place where you are challenged to think. It has to be a place where you are challenged to pray and to see what God wants done, okay? So back to letter F again. We don't want to be just simply uh, worker bees. Sensuality is the result of losing spiritual power. Now, where I was going with that was simply this, that when you get to be those kind of people who just stare at the boredom that goes on and you're getting used to the mundane, in walks somebody that says, hey, everybody, I got a big plan for you tonight. Let's see what we can do over here. Watch this. I'll throw this ball at you. Wow, all of a sudden, this is now a, a new kind of individual. He just broke the boredom. He just made it sound really good again. I'm living again. I'm so happy to be with this person. It was nothing more than sensuality. You follow where I'm coming from? It was just made to get my senses going, to get me up and moving because I had become part of the mundanity that goes on just watching machines flow. So you're setting yourself up for a sensual teacher who wants to come in and deceive you, okay? Persecution would bring sobriety back to the sensually drunk churches and they cease to exist or they cease to exist, okay? All right, any, any questions about those, those kind of things we talked about right there? How easy it is to get sensuality involved, remembering that you've got your own personal lust to have to deal with. You've got the adversaries outside of you who want to attack you. You've got worldliness that's outside of you that uses that which is internal to you. Okay. So let's look at the Roman numeral four, corruption in the church's practice. For the first 300 years of persecution and martyrdom, the churches were largely autonomous assemblies with loose connections to one another. In other words, they shared with each other. I know that they wrote letters back and forth to each other, and I know they often shared their assemblies. They visited back and forth from churches, and they showed hospitality. They'd send guests and that sort of thing back and forth to each other. So I know they had a loose connection, but it wasn't a governmental structure. Everybody, you see what I'm saying by that? It wasn't a heavy-duty structure that's involved with it. Going on, 
He says, they did send circular letters to one another and share teaching with each other, but due to persecution, having large public gatherings of many churches at the same time drew too much attention to them. The bishops, ruling elder or pastor, had authority only in his own church. Any meeting of bishops together was the gathering of equals, and no bishop held authority over another. I was in a foreign country, a foreign country that uh, has outlawed Christianity. Another religion was the prominent religion there. And they, uh, I had to be escorted into the country with another person. Uh, the agents from the federal government uh, owned the taxi service that you, you come to that country's border and you have to be driven through the country with the official government taxi service. Very nice, very intelligent young men that uh, would show you all the sights of their beautiful country. It was, it was very nice. They did a great job at it. But uh, we had to come in just a few here and a few there because any large assembly drew the attention of the government that was opposed to you having Christian gatherings. And I had, I had to be reminded that we can't talk loudly. And we had our meeting all the way up on a third floor, fourth floor of a particular building in this city that we're in. And people had to come in different directions and at different times. Everybody couldn't be there at the same time. We knew that the assembly was going to start at 10 o'clock in the morning. But you had people getting there at 7. Then it wouldn't be anybody again till 7.30. Wouldn't be anybody again until quarter to 8, whatever. You know, just a few here, a few there, until there was a pretty good group of us. That would have been an illegal assembly because we were going to teach them all about the Word of God, all about what God's plan was and that sort of thing. You, uh, when you have that, well, let's, uh, the, the possibility for persecution was real strong in that situation. But you had a very loose meeting. So they couldn't, the churches in that time could not have big assemblies. They couldn't rent out the Colosseum and say, hey, this week we're going to have uh, Billy Graham show up here and he's going to preach in the Colosseum. No, 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 no. You're not going to do anything like that. Not for those first 300 years. Uh, you're not going to have any big assemblies together, okay? Uh, letter B, those churches understood they had held a universal or Catholic faith in Jesus as Messiah. Now, when you use the word Catholic, make sure you understand that just means universal. Uh, when you have a Catholic faith, that means it's everybody that's in that group has that same faith, and they're all over the place. That uh, the people from Spain believe the same thing the people in Italy believe. The people in Italy believe the same thing that Turkey believes. The people in Turkey believe the same thing that America believes. That's a Catholic faith. So when you are trying to speak of Catholicism, don't speak Catholicism. Speak what it is, Romanism. It's about Roman Catholic. All that means is it's a universal faith that has Rome as its capital. Does that make sense to you? So that, that's, that's the big difference because Catholicism simply means a universal faith. It doesn't mean any particular uh, brand of that faith. Uh, those churches understood they held a universal or Catholic faith in Jesus as the Messiah. All of them did that. There was at times major differences in their understanding of the person to work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Al's been pointing out to us. But uh, 
It goes on, uh, it is alleged that during this time, the communion became the Eucharist, and that became the central focus of the gathering. Somewhere in those first 300 years, kids, and I'm not sure where it was, the Lord's table became known as Eucharist. Eucharist is just a good Greek word that simply means good grace. E-U is the word that means good. Charis is the word for grace. Eucharist means good grace. Or you heard somebody say, uh, Rich, it's time for us to eat meal. Would you say grace? What, you know, I've been asked that sometimes, and I've just simply said, yeah, I will. Grace. And then said it's time to eat because I don't know what that means to say grace. Grace, Eucharist, means good grace. It's the word for thanksgiving. So when you say Eucharist, you're saying thanksgiving. So the Eucharist is supposed to be a thanksgiving statement, a thanksgiving done. But when you make that the, um, uh, the Lord's table, and then you challenge it one more way, and you say that's a sacrament, what you're saying is that this Lord's table has just taken a, a level up from meal. It's not meal. It's not food anymore. It's now become a sacrament which gives to you special grace. By itself, it's giving to you grace. Not the, not the grace that comes from Christ. It's grace. And you'll have to have lots and lots of grace given to you if your life is going to be full enough of grace to get to heaven. So in other words, what you're doing with each Eucharist, you are adding a little more grace to you. With each uh, uh, prayer time that you attend, you're adding a little more grace. With each confession you go to, you're adding a little more grace. But you're adding just bits at a time, drops and drops in here and there, until ultimately, with enough of them, you might not have to go to purgatory. You might go directly to heaven. But that'd be pretty, pretty close to being a saint if you did that. All right? But uh, somewhere in those first 300 years, they changed it from just the Lord's table to making the, you, the Lord's table the center thing. And it became a sacrament somewhere. Uh, and now it's giving you grace. And I don't know what made that change, but our Lord did not say that. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yes, it, it, the, the Eucharist is, the, the Eucharist is the priest calling on the Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven and inhabit the bread and give his blood to the cup. So that's become the real body and the real blood of Christ. And he has the authority when he says the words he says to bring Christ from heaven to that bread so that it is crucified again. It's a sacrificial meal. That's what that is. Now, I, I don't think that's what happened in the first 300 years. But someplace in that first 300 years, they moved the, the, the Lord's table from being something that you did at the end of the love feast, the, the agape feast that you had there, that used to be they'd have a potluck dinner, and to close out the potluck dinner, they would have the Lord's table. That was, that was the way Jesus had done it at the Passover. Remember, at the Passover dinner he has that night, at the end of the dinner, he's given them the bread 
and the cup. So that's what they were doing. At the end of their dinner, of their potluck dinner, they would have the Lord's table. Somewhere in the first 300 years, they moved it from the end, like the dessert, they moved it to the main dish. And now somehow that, that got transferred to becoming sacramental, that this is what actually gives you grace because it is the crucifixion of Jesus over again. Okay? All right. Let her see. The structure of the church was quite simple following the structure of the synagogue and the traditions given to it by the Apostle Paul. There was a moderator or a president of the greetings who was the pastor or the teaching elder. That's what I would be tonight if that's what this is, uh, if this is what the structure was. There was a plurality of elders to watch over the flock and preserve true doctrine. So it's not, you, you don't have a single bishop that's in charge of something and then everybody else follows what he says. What you had, you had a teaching uh, elder who moderated the meeting. What I mean by that that if Rich says, I feel so happy tonight, can, can I say a psalm? Yes, Rich, give us a psalm, would you? And so he would give us a psalm, and somebody over here says, I have a teaching pastor, can I do that? Yes, you can do that. And if somebody else said, I have a, um, I think there may be somebody, uh, there may be a Russian present with us tonight, and I'd like to speak for just a few moments. So the, the man stands up, he speaks in Russian, and the guy sitting back in the back there go, wow, I understand the gospel now. I'm, I'm Russian, and that helped me understand that. And then another guy's going to stand up and say, I've got another teaching for, uh, this is out of the book of Isaiah, so he might read Isaiah and give a teaching. But the moderator is making sure that people do what they need to do at the right time. And then he might give a lesson himself. But the elders who were present were there to make sure that good doctrine's going on, that if any teacher arose that, or someone arose and said, I've got a teaching, and he said something that was not true, the elders would know enough to talk with him about that and say, that was not a true lesson tonight. We're not going to let you speak that again. Okay? So that, but then at the end of that assembly they had, they have a meal. Who do you think put the meal out? It wasn't Sue. It was going to be the deacons. That was what they're supposed to do. Now, Sue and the deaconesses, because there were lady deacons, the deaconesses were to get the meal ready, and the deacons then put it on the table so that everybody could eat. It's going to be the deacons then that serve the Lord's table as well. Everybody see where we're coming from? Simple structure. There was nothing big about it, okay? Um, there were deacons who served the meal, set the table, met the needs of qualified widows and those in severe need. Uh, spiritually gifted people participated as needed by the use of their gift. So if you get what I'm coming from, if you knew that your spiritual gift was teaching, you couldn't wait to get to the assembly because you, you were obligated to use your gift to teach. If you knew that your spiritual gift was that of helps, you would be at the church early, at the assembly place early, to make sure that you set out all the water that was needed for that assembly. You made sure that everybody, all the chairs were available and ready to go. You're making sure that there were, you know, if it's pocket New Testaments, then you made sure they had that. If it was copies of the letter that we just got, then you, you made sure people had that. You made sure that the podium was all set up and ready for the moderator to speak. You were making sure that everything was ready for that meeting. And you, at the end of it, would make sure that you got it all set back up again, ready for the next meeting. You follow where I'm coming from? So it's gifted people were using their gifts. Letter D, 
due to pressure put upon them by unbelievers and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a natural and spiritual unity formed that brought them to living together as a community. The bishop was the superintendent of the community, and the elders, deacons, served with him to meet community needs. Now, let's, let's remember this. How do people get around in those days? Largely by foot. They did a lot of walking which already tells you some good stuff about them, but they did a lot of walking. If you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ at the local marketplace and you knew that the assembly of the church was over there 16 blocks from here, rather than walk 16 blocks all the time, you would move your whole home over there. You follow me? So that you're now living in a community of believers so that your church is now a community church. You follow where I'm coming from on that? So everybody was living together, and they learned to share food with each other that way. They learned to share uh, nursery duties with each other. Their babysitting opportunities went together. Their kids played together. They built playgrounds together. They did things as a community. That's what the churches were. And they also knew enough to know Here are some sick people. Let's see if we can. That building over there is not occupied. Let's see if we can buy that building. They might buy that building, and that becomes the new hospital. That's the place of hospitality. Maybe it was going to be just simply a a place where um, those who are passing through would have a place to sleep. That was a hospitality center. Maybe it's going to be actual hospital. Here we're taking care of people with a broken leg. This person was beat up last week, and here we're taking care of them, whatever it was. That was going to be a part of the duty of that community. Uh, Letter E. But when Constantine and the Roman emperors who followed made the church legal rather than illegal and then made it into the official religion of the state, dramatic changes would take place in church structure and interaction. So as everybody was now living in a community together, they could at least warn each other when someone who was willing to persecute them was coming into the community. They'd be able to help each other because the, if, if I'm living over here, it's easy to take me out. But if all of us are living together in a, a, a four or five block area, then it's not as easy to take somebody away when we're all watching out for each other, all right? Well, it's going to change then when now you're not under persecution. Now you can live any place you want to. Let's take Edgemont Bible Church as as an example. It's hard for us to be a community church. Let's see if we can find out why. Rich, where do you live? O'Fallon. Dave? Swansea. Belleville. Fairview, Belleville, same place, but within two blocks of them? Oh, no, not even close. Where do you live? Where? Almost in Troy. Okay, okay, Doug, where do you live? Belleville, where do you live? Belleville, okay. So we got some live in Belleville, but I know enough to know that Belleville is a large area. It covers a lot of things. It's hard for us to be a community church because we're all coming from a lot of different locations. Why? Because there's freedom. And you don't have to worry about persecution. You don't have to worry about, uh, you, we, we're not as dependent on each other because we're very independent people. 
You're, you're, you're not needing to come to my house. It'd be crazy, Sheila, for her to think that you came over and asked Char for a cup of sugar and drove all the way back to Belleville. Oh, you're not going to do that. But if you live two doors down, Mike, I'm out of sugar. It's too late to go to Aldi's. I bet Char's got some. It's up the street, a cup of sugar. It's done. You, if, you understand what I'm saying? It just enhances community life when you're doing that. It's just the opposite when you're spread out all over the place. And it's hard. Uh, well, here's uh, uh, our, our good friend uh, on Sunday mornings. He, he's coming from all the way. Eugene's coming all the way from over South County someplace, someplace down in there. So he drives all that distance to come here. Um, the... Uh, um, uh, stuffle beams. They're coming from way down in uh, by Nashville or not, someplace down in there. They're coming all the way from there. So we've got people. It, it is difficult for them to feel community when we're so spread out. That's what freedom brought to them. So when now there's greater freedom about where it is, you don't have to live in community anymore. You can afford to spread out now. And that's what they did. That's going to make a big difference inside the church's politics now. You follow where I'm coming from? All right, let's see if we can break this one down real quick for us here. Letter F, Roman emperors assumed moderator roles acting as the head of the state religion, Christianity. So when the Christianity declared the state church, he's not asking somebody else to do something. He becomes the head honcho of the church. Is he qualified? Did, did, did he meet any of the standards that Paul set for a bishop? You know, Rich, I think you know that 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 have some pretty good qualifications for an elder in a church. So here's this guy who's been a Roman emperor, and that's all he's done. He's been in the politics of Rome. He's been in the military of Rome but he's not done anything in the church, and now he's the head of the church. Wow, guys, I just put an unbeliever, a, a, a guy who at least tacitly agrees to what this is, I've just put him in charge of the church. Do you suppose there might be some changes in church polity when he's there? Oh, yeah. Well, let's just go a little further. He sought unity and uniformity among the churches, and church councils started. We don't have church councils until after Constantine. There weren't church councils in the first 300 years to try to figure out what's the proper doctrine. They, they talked that among themselves and settled that situation. But here, he wants to bring all of the, quote, generals together, and he's going to have a generals meeting so we can set out a battle plan. You follow what I'm saying? What, what, what would you call an assembly of head, headquarters leaders like that? A joint committee, okay? So he's having a joint committee, and the joint committee is going to decide what's proper doctrine, uh, what's going to be the canon that we're going to accept, and all those kind of things. He's getting uniformity to this thing. We're all going to be alike in this, all right? Let's go to letter G. The decisions of those councils became orthodoxy. Those church bishops that did not adhere to the council orthodoxy were not permitted to stay in the fellowship. Exchanges of written documents between disagreeing bishops became, <laughs> uh, became uh, known as the church fathers. Uh, these exchanges often clarified official church dogma or doctrine. That's not being critical of what's happened. I'm just telling you, this is what was going on. All right? Letter H, 
ultimately the Bishop of Rome assumed headship. It makes sense, doesn't it, that if, you're, if the head of the church is the emperor, and shouldn't his bishop be the one that's the head of the church? So that's what took place. Making the church the official religious vehicle of the empire led to more conversions and enrollments of Roman citizens into the church. Now, just imagine how many unbelievers are going to be a part of the church now. They're going to be entering those roles because now it's the politically correct thing to do. The church is the official state religious vehicle. Everybody's going to have to be one of these. Well, man, if you've been used to being a uh, general or a legionnaire in the uh, military and you come to church, you're not anticipating being a lowly deacon. You better be an elder at least. And what you really prefer is being a bishop. Well, the, the emperor says, yeah, I've got a lot of bishops. I'm not sure I need another bishop here. Yeah? But, you know, if we had a little more gold on the spire of the church, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Hey, you know, I was just thinking to myself the other day, I happen to have in my pocket here enough money, I think, that would buy the gold for that spire. <gasps> Wonderful. You just became the Bishop of Fairview Heights. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you're going to learn to buy your way into all kinds of other positions of leadership. You follow what I'm saying? And you're, you're going to be using many unbelievers in that whole thing. Oh, they're going to be given tacit approval to the, the doctrines of Christ. But it's not because they believe the doctrines of Christ. It's because that's what's the policy. All right. Letter K. Um, uh, letter J. This would lead to political, social, and doctrinal confusion and corruption. To be a bishop could mean wealth, power, control, and political gain. Leadership positions could be purchased or obtained through political manipulation. As one might guess, this led to many unbelievers entering the church, especially the church leadership. Church leadership is going to determine the direction, purpose, goals, desires, and ambitions of the church. Since bishops had divine authority, what the bishop wanted was what God wanted. To resist would be rebellion. Developed traditions would supersede biblical truth. Anybody see any kind of problems that could develop with that? Man, as you can see, corruption is going to be a part of the church, all right? Uh, let me see. Oh, letter M. The church took its model for leadership not from that laid down by Christ, but from the empire's model of leadership. King-like authority was given to mortal men using the title bishop to do his will. He would use commander-like authority to tell a congregant what to do and when to do it. He became the mediator between God and man and usurped every believer's God-given privilege of priesthood. Now, here's the deal. Jesus taught us, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus gets down and washes disciples' feet. And he said, what you see me do, you do. He went on to say further, 
that your leadership will not be like the world's leadership, for they have guys who tell this one what to do. In other words, they have a hierarchy of authority people. This one is the top guy, and what he says goes. You do what he says. And then all down the line, everybody's giving orders. He said, you will not do that. You do not have lordship over anybody. If you want to persuade people, wash their feet. If you want to be great in this kingdom, then you take care of them. You serve them. You meet their needs. That's what he was saying. This is not a boss, a top-down situation. It's a bottom-up situation. Does that make you sense? That's, that's was changing now with the church. Matter of fact, if you, if you look right now, you can see that that same thing goes. Uh, I've had people, you know, can people pray and expect God to do something? Sure. Do you, do you have to be in a certain category before you can have answers to your prayer? Yet, I, I've known this, that from early on, when people wanted something done, they wanted the pastor to pray for it. Why would the pastor be praying for it mean any more than anybody else praying for it? You know who you want to be praying for it? People of faith. If that guy doesn't have faith, then you don't want him praying. His position doesn't give him any more power to pray than it does any other believing person. You follow where that is? So you're looking for someone who is a believing person to pray for you, not, not necessarily a pastor. Don't, don't wait to have prayer until the pastor gets there. He may be delayed. Uh, you know how to pray. God set you free. Pray. Okay. Well, I better, better bring it to a close here. Let me see what I can bring down to here. Let, let's go to letter N. Martyrdom was no longer a practice. There was no need to be disciplined about godliness or holiness since no one was going to be persecuting the believer. Whatever the church member did was considered acceptable behavior. With this new freedom, the practice of the member of the church would be consistent with that to which no one objected. So in other words, whatever I do, if nobody objects to it, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, kind of like today. With this new freedom, the practice of uh, the seat. Consequently, all matter of corruption brought in by unbelievers now in leadership positions became the practice of the day. To that remnant believer who was genuinely born again and sensing the pull of the Holy Spirit to be godly came an overwhelming sense of grief, disappointment, and often disgust. Um, who was it? I was trying to think here. Uh, Arminius. No, 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 not Arminius. What's, what is the John Calvin and oh, the guy that believed in free will? I can't remember what his name is right now. But uh, he came to Rome. He, he, I think he came from Ireland, if I remember right, someplace like that. He came to Rome, and when he saw what Rome was about, here was all this gold, and he's thinking, what's Jesus like? I mean, where, where's Jesus and all this? He saw all the political corruption. He saw the um, evil that was going on there. He was grieved in his spirit. He wanted to see something done about that, that this, this was just wrong, that the church was corrupted now with all kinds of lavish stuff it was doing. 
they, they weren't friendly to each other. They didn't care for each other. There was infighting going on. There was gossip going on. All that stuff was happening. He was grieved in his heart that that was what was going on. And he wanted reforms. So when he started speaking about reforms, they changed his bishop uh, so that he was now a bishop in Syria or a bishop on Crete or a bishop someplace else to get him out of Rome because he was seeing and pointing out too much corruption in Rome, all right? But um, that's the, he, was, he was experiencing grief. This could not be the church of Jesus Christ. He was poor and identified with the poor. He built no elaborate church buildings. He did not wear gold and silver. And as he said himself, he had, it had no place to lay his head. This church of this age is becoming wealthy and powerful, full of unbelievers, making a mess of it. The true believer grieved. Now, let me give you some solutions to what these guys did. When they were grieved by these things, and this doesn't start until about A.D. 250. Remember, the church doesn't become official until about 315. So about 250, the believers were, some believers were having so much trouble with the corruption that was already in the church, and that's before Constantine got to be a part of it. They were concerned about the corruption going on in the church that some of them, fighting their own internal struggles, um, began to do something that was called hermetical, aromatical. And then aromatical, that's a Latin word that means a hermit. So what they did, they left the community of the church because they just couldn't stand it anymore. The speech that was going on in church was ugly, and they felt they were falling into that trap. Listen, if you felt you're around people all the time who are misleading you, you want to get away from that people. Well, that's what they did. And these guys went out into the desert, and they lived in the desert by themselves. They often took vows of silence, promising not to speak again until they could speak true, good words. They could speak prayers. They could speak the Word of God. But they were not to speak to anybody else until they could give encouraging words or speak some things that were good. Okay? So that was the first group, those who went solitarily into the desert. They were often called the desert fathers or the hermit fathers, okay, or just just plain hermits. Uh, The second group, uh, letter C in your outline there, I think. Um, But for the believing man or woman viewing the sickening, God-grieving corruption in the church, no amount of asceticism would, would be helpful. In other words, these guys, uh, the guys that went out into the desert trying to defeat their own lust, trying to eat, if they were were hungry, they purposely fasted, and they would fast for long periods of time so that they, they just hurt with it, so that they could control their appetite. If they struggled with lust and things like that, they would take uh, cords and beat themselves with it, beat themselves till, till it bled so that they could punish the body for its fleshly things. Now, Paul wrote in the Colossians, that's of no value. That won't do you any good fighting against the flesh. But that's what they did. And often you'd see them hardly dressed, but just flailing themselves, trying to defeat the, the, the sin that was in them. But there were some people who said, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to do that. I, I don't like the corruption in the church, but I don't see that's a way. I don't like my own corruption, but that's not the way I'm going to fight it. So letter C Uh, They saw that no amount of asceticism would be helpful. Appeals to church leadership were only met with scorn or accusations of simplicity and vanity. Going off by themselves would not allow them to fulfill Jesus' command to love one another. 
They longed for community in which the truth of Jesus of the Christ would be the central focus. So it was the loss of persecution and the rise to prominence that gave rise to the corruption. And it was the corruption that gave the impetus to rise of an alternative church, Christian monasticism. Christian monasticism is a structured, ascetic pursuit of the Christian life. In other words, you're going to get yourself down to basic simplicities. All right? It involves a return to God through attention to the classic spiritual disciplines of silence, chastity, prayer, fasting, confession, good works, obedience, and vigils. These were believers who agreed to live together in community in individual cells, but with a common meeting place for assemblies. All participants had to agree to the rules of that community or order. Vows of poverty and celibacy. By vows of poverty, what we mean is that they, they agreed to sell everything they had and put it into a community purse. And they, everything that was purchased came out of that community purse. That's communal living, okay? So that's, that's what they practiced. Going on. These communities are about good works intensified by the efforts of the community and devotion to prayer, reading, study, writing, singing psalms, etc. The leadership structure usually included an abbot. That's from the Hebrew word abba, meaning father, who was responsible for discipline and order in the community. Uh, I think underneath the abbot was a, a prior. He was second in command. So he assisted the abbot in helping things out, and below the abbot was one called the dean. And that dean had 10 people he was responsible for. So 10 different monks, he was responsible for them. All right? Uh, All had to agree to the orders and authority. The Benedictine order, the Franciscan order are examples of this type of living. But for those who were already married, in other words, uh, they didn't want to be celibate. They, They already were not celibate. If you wanted to live with the Benedictines or the Franciscans, you had to be celibate. You couldn't be married. You had to be single. You had to be a virgin, that, that sort of thing there, okay? Uh, but those who were already married wished to say so, who also were disappointed with the corruption in the church and monastic life of celibacy, was not acceptable. For these people who wanted devotion to Christ and the spiritual disciplines to be their order of living, parting from the corrupted church was the only option. So oftentimes what you'd see in these groups where the church was corrupted, you would see large groups of people, several families moving at the same time. They would just pack it all up. They'd go look to find some farm property. When they could find good property that was for a farm, they would build themselves a community there, and they'd farm together and live together, all right? Uh, Groups that you might know from that would be the Amish, uh, would be the Mennonites, that's, that's the type of the Shakers. That's the type of, of community they wanted to live in. They found themselves in reinforcing each other in their faith, and that's what they were doing it for, okay? So I'm just trying to share with you when people were uh, upset with the corruption of the church, one, they might have pulled off solitarily by themselves. That's to fight their own corruption. But it also helped to fight the corruption of the church from their viewpoint, Secondly, you might be a single person that needed to get away from the corruption of the church and you wanted to devote yourself to a better living. You might go where other single men were living and you'd have your own place to live and then you'd share the work together. 
that was one, one of the ways. And the other was to form great communities of separation. What I plan to talk about from now on, who some of those communities are and what they believe, what they were trying to purify about a corrupt church. So I think we've got maybe one or two more lessons that we can do in that. So uh, letter G, but these separatist groups seeking purity in the church were often held in disdain by the organized church of the day. They were often declared heretical and excommunicated from the church. It was not unusual for them to come under the persecution of the Roman church. Once the church began its persecution, they tried to wipe out any evidence of the separatist group's existence by destroying their writings, their communities, and, or, and any other reminder of their existence if possible. Often, all we know about these separatist groups is what we find in the declarations of heresy made by the Roman church. So, there you go. Got through all six pages. Very late. Time to go. All right. If you don't mind, I'll close in prayer because it is 8.15 already. Thank you for being so kind to wait around. All right? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity you give us to see our own history, to see what happened to us, that we might put checks on ourselves so that we don't get involved with the same kind of things that tripped up other people. We know our weaknesses, Father, probably not as well as you do, but we know of our weaknesses. Help us to be people who are comforting to one another, encouraging to one another, and are noble in what we're doing to seek to be godly people. Thank you for what you're going to do there. We do pray for the very many requests that came up this night, Father. We know there's a lot of people who have special things. That Doug had mentioned things. We ask that you would minister there to the need that Doug is talking about. We know that there are others who have other great needs, Father, that are being expressed. We ask that those needs would be met too. We pray for the Broccoli family. And the Cumberland family asking that you would comfort and guide them through the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.